wholehearted, right? So um, I'm going to talk about a lot of that today. This is my big boy, Kochi. And so a couple of things that you don't know about him is that he has very, very healthy boundaries. But um, Freedom and Wakan do not like him. And it was funny because I was taking a shower, and I think it has some, some of it is a lot that Cochise and Freedom will never be Takoda's son. You know, and the um, wolf kingdom is our kindred species. It's just they, they, they Im we imitate them, and they imitate us. Good boy. You want to stay there? You can stay there. Good boy. And... Um, and so his position in the pack is not as high as the others would like to be. And yet he is Takoda's son. He is the brother of his sisters. And no matter how the other boys treat him, it does not diminish him. So for all of us out there who have been bullied at one point or the other and judged on one way or the other, or, you know, this one can't even go out the back door and go pee in peace without uh, Wakan giving him a howl for it right through the gate. <laughs> like, you are out there and I'm in here, and it's more like that. <laughs> but he comes back in after he does his business with a big smile on his face, and he's back in his safety zone. Now, in the, in the wild, they have about 40 acres to establish those boundaries with each other within a pack. Here in captivity, they have a room. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's not going to work out the way it would in the wild, even though we try to give them the best wild experience possible. But one thing that those others two won't do, I'll tell you a story about his wholeheartedness. We were, when we first got to the property, um, you know that you can see that we're fenced all the way around. And um, we have a, a neighbor, I won't name him, but he <laughs> has a bunch of little yappy dogs. And he knows that Thursdays was our day to take them out and run the property off lead so that they can enjoy 11 acres that we bought it for them, right? I don't need 11 acres to go run on. I'm sorry. Not my thing. <laughs> but they do. So we had them out one day, and he decided to walk like eight of his little yappy dogs down the street while they were out at the exact time. Talk about a pissing contest, right? <laughs> But I got nine wolves, and you got eight itty-bitty little things that think that they are all that, right? One, yeah. <laughs> One person. One person walking down, right? So Paul and I, they're whistle trained, so Paul and I were able to grab Dakota, and they'll go wherever Dakota goes, right, because he's dad. And we got Alaska, and we took and we whistled them all the way back to the pond, except Cochise. Cochise is at the fence going, oh, you think you're all that? Well, just let me tell you. <laughs> and we were all at the pond calling Cochise, you know, getting frustrated that he's not minding. And then these guys finally decided to turn around and go back the way they came. And they're headed down the street, and Cochise is with them. And he is at the fence with them. No fence fighting. I mean, they weren't at the fence. He wasn't jumping the fence, and he could. He climbed in my back window the first year we were here into the, the guest rooms. <laughs> no, he didn't climb. But he didn't. And he's like, you're He gets all the way to the other end of the property. We're still, believe it or not, we held, what, we had like how many? Ten over here at the pond waiting for Cochise. Cochise, they disappear from our sight. They disappear from his sight. He comes back with a big smile on his face and go, I got him. <laughs> I told him. <laughs> Freedom, if there's a deer, he won't go unless you go. So he thinks he's all that with this guy, right? And Wakan, you look at him funny, you walk behind him funny, and you scare him, and he's a big baby Lala, and he's up a tree. Do you know what I mean? So, so much for the big, bold, and the brave bullies that bully this guy, right? That's wholeheartedness. That is, I'm going to take care of my family, no matter what. 
and the strength of courage in that and the strength of heart in that. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So for the guy that gets bullied in our pack the most, do you know what I mean? He's the one you don't want to mess with. For real. <laughs> now here's the other thing is that, you know, we, we um, anybody heard of a John Bradshaw book called um, Healing the Shame That Binds Us? Yeah. Hold on a second. I took those off too early. Hold on. <laughs> Get my papers back. Um, he has no shame in his place. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't take personally on some deep level that he is less than because of the way they treat him. Thank you. And our human condition, we kind of take everything personally from the get-go. Somebody looks as us funny or isn't mean to us. We somehow don't think there's something over there that's not right with that person. We think there's something wrong with this. And take that to heart and carry it into the next situation and the next situation and the next situation. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. So um, Brene Brown talks about wholeheartedness. And um, she's my new favorite author. <laughs> and this is what she said. You guys know Brene Brown at all? Okay. If you don't, you now do. Wholehearted living is about engaging with our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done today and how much is left undone, I'm enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave, worthy of love and belonging. And this, when I call it wolf wisdom, this is what he teaches me every single day. Every time he walks back into the house after Wakan yells at him for just being Cochise, you know, that he walks back in and he sees my face and goes, hi, mom. <laughs> you know, that's my life lesson he teaches me. So before we get too far, I'd like to start um, and welcome everybody who's new, who's never been here before, who came to see the wolves. Well, you get an hour of me first. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, just relax in your chair. I'm going to do a little meditative song that we start and open with. But um, I'd like to say just exhale. And um, you don't have to hold on to anything while you're in here. The chair has got you, and Mother Earth has that chair, so you don't have to hold on to anything. You can just relax. Here's what I know. 
I know that as sure as I'm standing here, there is an energy, a life force, a creative energy. We all call it by another name or each other's name. <laughs> there's the great creator. There's the great mystery. There's God. It's many, many names. All I know is that we were created with this energy like every living thing and that we are perfect, whole, and complete, deliberate creations of this intelligence, which makes you perfect, whole, and complete because there's nothing else that you could possibly be. In all of creation, you are a unique expression of this creative energy. And I believe that you have a divine purpose for being here that you are here for a reason and that your heart's desire moves you in the direction of your divine purpose at all times. And that it is our duty to ourselves to live a wholehearted life <laughs> because that's where the information of your wisdom, the wisdom to yourself and the wisdom that you share and the experience that you share with the planet by being here in this lifetime. And so I claim for each one of you that you can see your beauty, that you can see your worthiness, that you can identify with your creation in a way that lets you know that the world cannot do without you. It cannot do without your presence and your uniqueness and your purpose here. And so I know that no matter what you came for today, that you get what you came for from your heart and that that embodies your spirit to walk from this property <laughs> knowing your beauty and how special you are. And so I'm very grateful that you're here. I'm grateful for everything that has come to me before now that is in my presence at this moment and everything that is coming and into infinity for me and for you and everyone else. And I release these words knowing that it is true for the universe. I know that the universe is holding everything I just said in its hands of grace, holding you there too. And I can say, and so it is. Amen. Aha. <laughs> so, we were not sent to this world to do anything into which we cannot put our hearts. Do you believe that? And if you're lucky enough like me, you find throughout your life where you belong each second of the way, right? So that I end up standing here in front of you, you know, in the presence of wolves <laughs> with a mission to do this with a husband, you know, of my dreams finally. You know, all of those kind of things. <laughs> what did you say? What did he say? Oh, you paid me to say that. Yes. <laughs> so, Brene Brown says this, shame. It's a sneaky thief. It takes our confidence, and if we're not careful, it can steal our spark, leading to a life of blunted emotion. But once identified, shame has little power. Identifying sources of shame can be crucial to living a life of freedom. Fighting shame can restore joy, gratitude, and love. So never shy away. This is um, Anton Martin. Nev oh, see, they like that too. <laughs> they always let us know they're here too at certain moments of my talk. It's a beautiful sound. Never shy away from an opportunity and wholehearted living. Never be fearful of putting yourself out there. The courageous may encounter many disappointments, experience profound disillusionment, gather many wounds, but cherish your scars for they are the proud emblems of a truly phenomenal life. 
but fearful, cautious, cynical, and self-repressed do not live at all. And that is simply no way to be in this world. So um, last Saturday, we had two mass shootings in a row, one in El Paso and one in Dayton. And um, I had to go into town, and I always listen to my books on tape. And I had finished my book, so I didn't know what I was going to listen to. And I realized that I hadn't listened to the last tape of The Power of Vulnerability um, of Brene Brown. And one of the first things she said on the tape was um, that she um, had, um, she was remembering a mass shooting that took place in Texas when I was a little girl. It was the first in our nation. Um, uh, a young man went to the top of the University of Texas with a sniper rifle and just started picking people off. And it took hours to get to him. And I remember as a little girl, you know, it being on the news and that kind of thing. And then I saw a movie of the week later. Um, Kurt Russell played him. And uh, so I got more information, of course, from a dramatic point of view. But she was saying that after that happened, that the, you know, that the governor of Texas decided he was going to figure out what caused it. And so we got all these research together, researchers together and all these scientists to do a study to figure out what, what would make a person do that. And um, they, he found um, a, a doctor whose name is, um, let me, oh gosh, Stuart Brown. No relation to her, she said. But um, he was a violence researcher. And so he started to research, and what he found out is that on a common denominator, people who take up a gun and just go start shooting strangers, um, one common denominator they had is that they had a childhood without play. They had a childhood where they, they were grown up in a way that it was a very punitive world. All, there was no play. There was no, it was all structured in a way that anything that wasn't work or a duty or a chore was um, uh, lazy. Do you know what I mean? It was all of these things. So when we talk about repression, do you know what I mean? There was no fun. No fun. So instead of a violence researcher, after doing this, he started being a play researcher. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I'm going to talk about play in our lives. And who's playing? Now, when Paul and I first met, we were in Studio City, and we had just Dakota and Alaska, and we could throw them in the truck, and we could go anywhere. We went to Yost. Who did I say? Oh. Shadow in Alaska. Sorry, girl. We would just throw them in the truck and we would take them anywhere. And then, of course, Dakota joined us and then it was the three of us. And we were like, we could throw them in the truck and go anywhere. And we'd take them to Yosemite. <laughs> we'd take them everywhere like that. And, um, you know, we could throw them in the backyard or leave them in the house and everything was fine. And then um, one of our favorite things to do was just to go down the street and get some Baskin and Robbins ice cream. We'd sit on the tailgate of Paul's truck and go home to the wolves. Do you know what I mean? It was just as simple as that, play. Just a simple play thing. Do you know what I mean? And the way um, uh, Paul even met the person who connected him with Shadow is that um, the Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, every Friday night they have a, a hot rod, hot motorcycle gathering, and he's got his, you know, hot motorcycle, and I would climb on this little seat this big. <laughs> but I could last 10 minutes to get to Burbank from Studio City, and we would go, and we'd hang out, and we'd have hamburger and french fries, and we would do all this. Well, by accident... We had six puppies, <laughs> and we got evicted from the city, and Shadow got cancer, and you know what I mean? There was just um, play in our lives got knocked out from underneath our feet. And then you add on top of that the 2008 crash. It knocked my business out. It knocked a, a lot of Paul's business out. So we've got a wolf with cancer. We've got a economic crisis when trying to stay in business we're getting evicted from the city and we have you know six wolves we have to find a place to go that is permanent so that we can't ha and don't have to go through this again what 11 i lost count sorry i'm not good with numbers but <laughs> i remember each one of them in my heart believe me um so i was listening to this tape going 
we're having no fun. <laughs> Paul and I have not replaced the fun that we used to have. We haven't found the little avenues, do you know what I mean? To just, between the two of us, go and relieve the stress and what play can do for us. And so, in this research, and then looking up even further and going deeper into this, um, Janice Martirano says this, there is no work-life balance. We have one life. What's most important is that you be awake for it. Do you know what I mean? So, I just described, you know, that, I, I don't know what anybody else was going through at that time, but that was what we were going through that time. And, and we had to keep ourselves up for your families, for the wolves. Do you know what I mean? We had a responsibility now, and we had a business. We had two businesses and a nonprofit to make a difference, to continue to make a difference no matter what we were doing. Stuart Brown says, um, of all animal species, humans are the biggest players of all. We are built to play and built through play. When we play, we are engaged in the purest expression of our humanity, the truest expression of our individuality. It is any wonder that oftentimes we feel most alive. Those that make up our best memories are the moments of play. But I can't remember... Uh, the last time I remember that was when I was living in Nashville, and that means I was five and under, out in the snow with my brother, and we had one of those little red wagons, those little, you know what I mean, in the 50s. <laughs> and we were outside all day, all day, with that wagon, no matter what time of year. I don't know what we did with that wagon, but we lived that wagon. That wagon became probably every single building, every single imaginary thing that we ever did. That's all I remember is the last time fun happened. Do you know what I mean? Because then school started, then it was structure, and then it, do you know what I mean? It's like everything was homework, and then there were chores, and it just got more and more structured from there. Einstein says this, playing is the highest form of research. All play is associated with intense thought activity and rapid intellectual growth. My best friend's son, when he was eight years old, he's now 23, they ended PE at his school. Not only did they end PE, but they, they um, ended rec time. Brooklyn. Where else do you, seriously, you're eight years old and you're going to throw these, you know, children in with a teacher for, I don't, who's a teacher here? Anybody? I mean, at least we got to go out and play dodgeball and then run around on the, you know, the, um, it was in elementary school that ended in junior high. You know, I don't know why at 12 it changes, but, <laughs> you know. You know, that we had the monkey bars and the slides and that, you know, every single school was equipped with something you could go out and play on. You know, play in your backyards and stuff like that. I went out, out into the fields and I played and we made forts. You know what I mean? I don't know about you, but I played man from uncle. That's how old I am. We had neighborhood teams, you know. One had to be chaos and one had, you know, the heroes and the... <laughs> If not, it was cowboys and Indians. It was Texas. Sorry. See what I mean? But we played a lot, and we invented quite a bit. And I saw an, a, a study in Norway. They've completely changed their entire educational system. So that's, it's six hours a day for the kids, and most of the time they're playing outside. And they have the highest reading scores, the highest math scores. They have the highest um, scores and almost the entire world. So they're doing something that we're not doing yet. And the Industrial Revolution, when it came along, which we don't have still, do you know what I mean? But we still kind of behave like we do. It, it behooved the owners of the manufacturing companies for them to have a population of workers that did not 
have an education because they needed you to stand there and do what they needed you to do over and over and over and over again. And until, you know, we got labor unions and labor laws, you know what I mean? Children, had to, children who were poor did that too. So we've raised a generation and we're continuing on in this way that all work and no play, do you know what I mean? Makes me think of The Shining every time I hear <laughs> And you know what happened to him. If you don't know that movie, don't go, don't bother. Uh, <laughs> but um, I'll give you a little history about my mother. My mother was the firstborn of a family of uh, five more boys um, in the Depression in a small steel town in Pennsylvania. So she came into this world to work from the moment she got here. Right? So she passed that down to us. So it didn't matter what you did. It had to be perfect. It had to be regimented. It had to be clean. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I grew up in this structure that there's no play, even if you're good at piano lessons. So piano lessons was my mother waking us up first thing in the morning before your finger. You know, remember when you can't even, like, I used to get up and she'd help me make my bed. At least she helped, right? But you know your fingers don't work when you first get up. Like, <laughs> it's just like there's no blood in them, right? <laughs> you know, I just remember having to make the bed and I can't feel my hands. So the next thing I would to do was to go sit at the piano with her and practice. You ever practiced anything with somebody sitting right next to you <laughs> with their head over yours? And I remember one day I, I skipped out the window. I heard my brother playing the piano and I jumped out the window and played hopscotch on my front lawn. <laughs> and all of a sudden, somebody comes out, one of my neighbors comes out and goes, Colette, get in the house. Your mother just called the police because she can't find you. <laughs> So I totally lied. She's like, where were you? And I was just outside. <laughs> How'd you get out there? And I go, you were playing with the piano with Keith, and I just walked by and went outside. Of course I didn't. I climbed out the window. <laughs> She's bawling. <laughs> but it was, that was how horrifying it was to get up and play the piano. So no fun at playing the piano. When I chose the flute, same thing. Did you practice your flute? Did you practice the flute? You know what I mean? No. Can I get rid of the flute now? Guitar lessons, I wanted to learn how to play guitar because it was the 60s and I wanted to sing like Joan Baez, right? No, she gets me a guy, I'm like nine, <laughs> who teaches only classical guitar. That's not, I, I, I am, huh? You know what I mean? So it lasted this long. So the idea of play for her, unless you were gonna have an end result, that she could claim as something important, then it was not gonna happen. And so this was my structure, right? So, so no, you know, it's like everything that I touched and then into sports, you know, became, you know, bigger, better, best. Bigger, better, best. And then of course, at that point, you're competing with somebody. So if it wasn't swimming, it was gymnastics or any kind of ball sport, you're now competing rather than, um, uh, a contest, you know what I mean? Contests are kind of great because you're, you're kind of competing with somebody else. Um, this uh, this uh, Dr. Brown, he did an animal study and it was sort of like with bears. He said, you know, animal kingdom, they will actually give themselves a disadvantage to continue playing, to continue the contest. Because there's kind of no win unless it's a fight, right? But if you're playing, you've seen animals play, right? Especially a freedom. Freedom will take the ball, but if you don't go chase him with the ball, then he's no fun. He's like, he'll go grab your ankle to come chase him with the ball. He doesn't want you to have the ball, but he wants you to chase him. And he'll give up the ball, and then he'll come, and he'll grab your ankle so you continue to play with him with the ball. Right? That's what animals do, because they want to continue to play. Right? They'll go attack you, right? Put you down on the ground, and then run back and put themselves down on the ground, hoping you'll come do the same to them. Right? It's kind of, I watch Freedom do it with Ojin in the living room every single night. 
we have couches now that they can just bounce all over and climb the backs of <laughs> leap. <laughs> but that's kind of what he said is missing from our playtime, you know? And hobbies are really great like that. Like anything that you can get lost in in time is what she said is play. Like if you start to engage in something and you lose total track of time and you don't know how many hours and when it's over, you don't want to stop, that's what play is. Recreation is something different. Maybe a hobby is even work that you got to learn, but play is a whole nother idea. Einstein also says the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society, a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Dr. Brown also says those who play rarely become brittle in the face of stress or lose the healing capacity for humor. You know? George Bernard Shaw says, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Play. I'm going to share two Thanksgivings with you, which will kind of like <laughs> give you a little more example also. So Thanksgiving, they're very stressful times. But usually you're coming together to celebrate a holiday with family and friends, right? It's a lot of work, Right? By the time you get the food, and it is 15 minutes later, and everybody is dissipated, there's like an entire kitchen has exploded with <laughs> gravy and <laughs> broth and dishes to do, right? So um, on one of my rare moments where I um, would go home to have a Thanksgiving dinner, um, uh, my grandparents were there. Probably one of the last times I ever saw them um, alive, but... Um, my grandparents were there, and dinner was over, and we'd, like, cleared the plates, and we went out, and we had been discussing what we might do as a family, you know, go to the mall or whatever, do something fun. And um, we were just sitting there enjoying our tea, and my mother comes out after doing whatever she was doing. She sits down, and she goes, okay, what are we going to do? And we're all, like, so full. You were tripped to find out. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? Well, you said you were going to do something. We're like, yeah, we're doing it. And she goes, I don't see you doing anything. What are you doing? And I said, we're visiting. And it, she, she got it. She was like, oh. <laughs> we're visiting. But to her, you know, and look, I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm really ragging on my mom here. But can you imagine living in her mind? Living in that pace and the self-talk that she must do to herself. Do you know what I mean? If she's not constantly moving and doing and accomplishing and showing up, you know, having a show for something, that visiting with your family is lazy to her. Or not doing something, you know, that's not calm. So my next Thanksgiving story is because since I was raised in this environment, <laughs> I dated this guy in New York, and we lived in the city, and um, we were going to his parents' house and his sister's house um, for Thanksgiving, and we had, it's a four-hour ride on a bus to Woodstock, which is where she lives. So we had to get up, get up to the train station, get on the bus, get all the way to Woodstock, which we're talking about five hours, six hours since I've eaten. We walk in, there's not a cracker, there's not a cheese. <laughs> I had made some, uh, <laughs> I had made some banana, uh, some pumpkin bread, which is my favorite thing. Do you know what I mean? And um, his sister, who was the lady of the house, was getting ready. And um, her husband was there, and I said, I really, I need if something from my blood sugar. <laughs> I need to, do you have a cracker? Oh, she'll kill me if I bring any food out. Whose house is this? <laughs> but the words, she'll kill me. And so she, he sees his mother arrive. He sees his mother arrive. 
in the in the yard and she's like coming and it's it's cold up in new york and so there's a whole vestibule for her to get to he goes to the freezer he pulls out the stoli <laughs> he pours it in a glass he goes to the door and she's about to open it and he hands it to her before she even gets into the room <laughs> and i'm watching this dynamic do you know what i mean of this regiment i mean he had it down to a science that she had her coat off and her galoshes off and the door open and there's the vodka in her hand before she can even walk into the living room so we have dinner we're having dinner all of a sudden everybody's up and just me and the mother who's sloshed by now because of the vodka and um uh, my, uh, my boyfriend's mother, and they're all sitting there and we're having tea. Once again, we just finished our pie. And she's at the table, are you done with that? Are you done with that? See what I mean, trying to clear the table. And so I see her over in the kitchen out of the corner of my eye and she's like this. This is his sister, right? She's like this. And then all of a sudden, like within five minutes, she had the vacuum cleaner out literally vacuuming underneath our feet. I had to lift my feet for her to be vacuuming underneath <laughs> Thanksgiving Day. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe she has to work tomorrow. She worked for the forestry. And, I, and so I started a conversation, you got to work. No, I don't have to work. So it's just the inability to just sit and to be. And I was a cognizantly aware at that time and had enough therapy <laughs> to go, wow, look what I chose as a possible family to join. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I have been primed for this family. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't end up there, no hard feelings or anything, but can you imagine? I, we, you no know, relaxation, no moment-to-moment -moment interaction. You know, and you can blame cell phones for a lot, but you can't blame cell phones for that because they didn't exist. That didn't exist. You know, so I, I get a lot of people saying, you know, it's those phones falls. You can't get off those devices. Those devices saved us from having to have this. You know? Because after that incident, you know, I... It's not a cell phone I'm giving her, you know what I mean? It's a vodka. It's, you know, not being able to sit and let other people sit and relax. Her inability not to be able to be doing. And so I'm exhausted just telling you these stories. <laughs> Richard Lingard says, you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than a year of conversation. Can't you? You go out and have a game of kickball with somebody, you've learned everything you need to know about that person, right? You, you can know whether they share, you know if they're competitive, do you, you know whether, you know what I mean? They, 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 whether they cheat, exactly. <laughs> whether, they're, whether they're fair, you can learn everything you need to know about somebody after playing a game. Voltaire, each player must accept the cards life deals him or her. But once they're in hand, he or she alone must decide how to play the cards in order to win the game. So look, I got a shorthand where it came to over um, <laughs> obsessive <laughs> compulsive behavior, right? I got that inheritance. That's okay. It's now not on her. She inherited it too. She can't help it because she's not aware of what it's doing to her and the people around her. She has never taken on the responsibility of the effect that her anxiety puts on the people around her. And now she's close to 90 and she has no friends. And my father is, you know, up there too. God bless them, but they don't have any family and friends that can stand to be around them. My cousin, after that incident in Thanksgiving, 
spent one night there and then changed and came to the house of my brother where I was staying and said, somebody needs to take her to a doctor and put her on medication. You know, she can clear a room in less than five minutes. But that's sad. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And I feel so grateful. When I say I am grateful for everything that has come before me, I mean it with my whole heart. Because I don't have to live like that. And I don't. But that's a blessing. It's a blessing that I fell so hard so many times that I didn't want to fall like that again, that I ended up getting help for this because it was in the way of this. And I had so much judgment from here about this that I couldn't live fully. And that's not just her fault. That's every teacher I had. That's every coach I had. That's every boss that I had that made me feel less than so that they could feel better. Because someone made them feel that way too. So it's this epidemic, do you know what I mean, of how we're supposed to behave around each other. And so if we would just stop judging each other and start playing together. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo, right? There is an um, institute in Philadelphia. I don't know whether it still exists, but I learned about it when I was in college, which makes it 50 years ago. But, um, well, 40, and I'm not 70. But uh, it's called the Institute for the Achievement of Human Potential. And some of you old enough to remember or, you know, new parents, that's where they used to teach their kids math, you know, and show them the flashcards. And I heard a lot, of, and it was brilliant. It was brilliant because I had studied neurology, and our brains are that fast that active, that absorbing, do you know what I mean? That way, that's an, how you process it, right? And so a lot of parents go, that is just too much work for a child. And they're like, ooh, ooh, and all the flashcards had fun numbers and fun things, like, you know? The reading numbers, that pictures, you know what I mean? It's like you teach your, they want to read, they want to learn. It was a flashcard for heaven's sakes, it wasn't a book. You didn't make them sit down under a hot light, you know what I mean, and read for hours on end, it was a game, a learning game. So we can, we can, through play, teach kids, because with play, you have to actually engage with somebody else. I mean, you can play solitaire, but how fun is that, right? You can play video games. But how fun is it when you have somebody with you and you're playing together? You understand what I mean? So even the games where you play tennis in your house, don't you know you can play with a screen, but you can play with somebody in your somebody else too. We have to start engaging with each other again to learn communication skills so we don't feel so alone and isolated. And if a phone can help you do that and a device can help you do that, then great. If not, throw your kids outside. We survived. I played in ditches in the rain in Texas. Think about it. And I have one of the healthiest immune systems ever on the planet. <laughs> It is time for a return to childhood, to simplicity, to running and climbing and laughing in the sunshine, to experiencing happiness instead of being trained for a lifetime of pursuing happiness. It is time to let children be children again. Stuart Brown, what might seem like a frivolous or even childish pursuit is ultimately beneficial. It's paradoxical that a little bit of non-productive, that's the other way that you know that you're playing instead of doing, a little bit of non-productive activity can make one enormously more productive and invigorated in other aspects of life. 
When an activity speaks to one's deepest truth, it is a catalyst enlivening everything else. Paul and I are exhausted. I'm just going to tell you. Exhausted from eight years of trying to just keep our heads above water, to keep these guys alive, to get the message out there. Do you know what I mean? To make sure these guys have what they need. It was seven days a week until I... We, last year, something had to change. So now we do our programs every other Saturday, and I went down to one Sunday a month. But we did seven years of every single day of the week. But we have not found play yet. So now our assignment this week is to brainstorm about play <laughs> that we can do. And so that's our assignment which is very, very fun to think what we can do. Because Paul spends, just so you know, he go, he's a three-hour round trip down to the city to work. He, and then when he's working, he's going client to client. So he's in the truck 13 hours a day. So getting home to go 35 minutes into Lancaster to a Baskin and Robbins and sit is not anyone's idea of fun after that. Do you know what I mean? So we have to find our new little simple moments. So we're having, my idea is we're going to get salsa lessons. We've been talking about it since we met 11 years ago. So I would love to salsa, and so would he. And we can come out in the barn. We don't even have to go anywhere to turn on the music. Look at our sound system. We can clear the room and have as much fun as we want to. Anybody want to join us? Let me know. Okay. <laughs> No, he's not, yeah. And you know, just something so simple. I used to, hours and hours and hours when I was broke um, uh, with my ex-husband, we played backgammon. Backgammon, over and over. I loved it, loved it. And then I brought a backgammon game to our relationship. He brought a backgammon game to our relationship, and Shadow and Alaska ate them. <laughs> <laughs> the whole game boards were destroyed. He had a really nice one with, you know, all the leather. It was about this big. So we're going to try and replace that. So there's a, you know, and then there's a, a favorite place that we, we'd like to go up in Pine Mountain and have dinner. And we haven't been there in over a year. We could do that once a month so easy. Rather than wondering how we're going to make it and get the debt down and every single weekend go, how are we going to, you know, make our lives better eventually, right? Exhausted and ready to quit almost every moment because that's where we are right now. I don't know if that's you. But if the, <laughs> if the remedy is play, I'm all for it. And it makes me want to cry because I forgot how. You know, I forgot how not to work and to do something especially when your office is in your house. Anybody have an office in the house? Like, how do you shut the door and not go, oh, one more thing. Uh, oh, one more thing. Oh, one more thing. <laughs> you know? I have to take this phone call. It's 930. No, you don't. Silence the phone. Let me see if there's anything else here before. Look, I have so much <laughs> material on this. And I'm going to, um, okay. Here we go, here we go. Um, here we go. Spiritual humility is not about getting small, not about debasing oneself, but about approaching everything and everyone else with a readiness to see goodness and be surprised. And I mean that about you too. At the night, at the end of the night, when you go and you look in the mirror and you go, "Wow, you did good. You did really good today. You didn't do everything, but you did really good today." This is the humility of a child. It is the humility of the scientist and the mystic. It has a lightness of step, not a heaviness of heart. 
The lightness is the surest litmus test I know for recognizing wisdom when you see it in the world or feel its stirrings in yourself. It is a joy to name. It is a gift to plant them in our senses, our bodies, the places we inhabit and the part of the world where we can see and touch and help and heal. It is a pleasure to wonder at the mystery we are and find delight in the vastness of reality that is embodying our beings. It is a privilege to hold something robust and resilient called hope. Helping other people evolve. Which has the power to shift the world on its axis. So I chose this song today called Rise Up by uh, Andre Day. I don't know how I'll, well I'll do with it, but I chose it in honor of those people who um, went through those shootings last week, who in Dayton had just, you know, made it through hurricanes and tornadoes and there's flooding and we've got a lot of um, people hurting right now. And so I, I thought this song was appropriate for that and to remind us to take care of ourselves and our minds and live wholeheartedly, which means whatever joy is coming from this big place, this energy, do you know what I mean? Take advantage of it now, in this moment, with your loved ones, because we don't know tomorrow, we don't know the next moment, we don't know next year, we don't know about the pursuit of happiness later. We know what we can have right now and what we can do for each other. Okay. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round. You can't find the fighter, but I see it in you gonna walk it out and move mountains are gonna walk it out and move mountains and I'll rise up I'll rise like the day I'll rise up I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up and do it a thousand times again I'll rise up high like the waves I'll 
Oh, my goodness. Jacob Norby says, you know that crazy heart of yours? The one with the light crackling and the moonlight shining through it? The one you've been told not to trust because it often led you to too far off the beaten path? The one so many have misunderstood your entire life? Trust it. Feed it. Grow it. It's your greatest treasure and will point you the way to your highest destiny. It is the voice of your soul. Namaste. <laughs> oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Um, I just want to uh, let you know before we go, uh, we'll all go see the wolves afterwards, and um, hopefully the coffee and tea is ready now because <laughs> I forgot to plug it in. But <laughs> please enjoy yourselves for a moment afterwards, and then we will... Um, uh, go see the wolves, and we'll have to take turns, obviously, because we've got a big group. But thank you so much for coming. Just so you know, we don't pass a basket, but if you have a donation that you would like to leave for Shadowland Foundation, there's some jars at that. We really appreciate it and open our hearts to as much um, of the wealth of the world and all the gifts that the universe can shower on us. I'm just going to call that out there right now. And... Um, from our hearts to yours, thank you in advance for your generosity and your generosity of spirit and the way you are about my animals. I will just add one more thing. You know how when you, you can learn more in an hour of somebody playing as you can in, a, in a, you know days of conversations? Um, I have the great honor of uh, meeting so many beautiful people because I can tell who you are by the way you interact with my wolves. And that's what I do for a living. I watch people become beautiful around these wild animals. And that's where I ended up, <laughs> you know, and for many years to come. So thank you so much. Um, if uh, any of you have a burden that you would like to leave here and not take home with you, there's a piece of paper out here by a basket that has an antler on it. We call it our burden basket. Fill out that burden. Fold it up and put it in that basket, and I will burn it later in a prayer. You don't need it. It's not yours. If it does not enhance your life, <laughs> you need to take it with you, then leave it behind. Um, and then there is a gratitude jar, though. It's a little um, Navajo jar with turquoise on it, and you can write um, um, whatever you're grateful for and leave your gratitude here. We appreciate that. Anyway, I finished with a song that um, is called The Face of God, and it has sign language to it, and it's like this. You are the face of God. I hold you in my heart. You are a part of me. You are the face of God. <sighs> Hey, everybody. <laughs>